Hi, and welcome back to OA on Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's 321 Go. Then, Cosmo speaks with Doug Banks, editor of the Boston Business Journal. And last up, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, and welcome to 321 Go on OA on Air, our closer look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero, and joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. Hello, Cayenne, the official voice of OA on Air. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. It's been a little bit. It's been a little bit. It's been a minute, as people like to say, which drives me nuts because I hate that phrase, but I just used it. It's been a minute. It's been a hot minute. <laughs> a hot minute. Um, great, to, uh, great to be back on uh, 321 Go with you, Cayenne. Uh, we can jump right into it, too. A few exciting things or interesting things. Um, a couple involving the teaching profession. Let's start first um, uh, with a pretty nice story about the 2022 Massachusetts Teacher of the Year. I guess they named that. Uh, um, I guess they they, they named that uh, person in advance or uh, looking ahead uh, a role they'll serve in next year. Uh, from the uh, wonderful, speaking of October, wonderful city of Salem, Massachusetts. Yes, uh, Marta Garcia uh, she is a Salem public school teacher. She was just named Massachusetts Teacher of the Year on Wednesday. It is the state's highest honor for educators. Uh, it now makes her Massachusetts candidate for the National Teacher of the Year program. Um, in taking a page straight out of Salem, she teaches at Witchcraft Heights Elementary School, which I would not have believed was a real name unless I read it in the Boston Globe. Um, you know, I when I read this, first of all, amazing teachers are just, they've always been incredible, but never more than I think the past year and a half. It's almost like I can't even imagine what it was like to pick one teacher for this honor. Um, I don't, next to, you know, obviously frontline workers in, in so many professions, teachers have had it just so incredibly hard. Um, and she is in her 15th year teaching multilingual learners, which is uh, really impressive. That's actually a pretty common program in a lot of schools here in Southern California, as people could imagine. Um, but not so much in Massachusetts. So I think that's really, you know, that's certainly really interesting. We know the future of language in the United States of America is evolving uh, very quickly. Um, and she gets to, you know, deserve all the kudos and all of the things. And now she'll, you know, perhaps be National Teacher of the Year. But what a nice story to start us off. It is. And, and you know what? Teachers really have had it difficult uh, in the, over the past 18 months or so during COVID-19 and into the into uh, you know, during the height of the crisis, and then what, and whatever we are, we're, we calling, we're calling this now. Um, you can't. I mean, you know, you, you can't. Uh, you can't win. And just about every every dissatisfied community, which is just about everyone with a public school system during COVID nineteen, invariably there's going to be a uh, segment of the community blaming the teachers or the teachers union or, and and, and look, I'm you know the quality of education suffered and declined significantly not because of the teachers but yeah because, not for lack of effort no no but, but in, in many communities because because it, it's it's a flawed way it's an, a difficult way it is a 
um, not ideal way to educate large numbers of students um, it, uh, remotely. And, and I think that as a society, we could pivot to and, and adapt to that better over time. You can't do it on a dime. You can't do it in 90 days. And that's what, what schools had to do. And, you know, the teachers were, 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 uh, were sort of the heroes of that, Make, you know, getting kids through school and getting kids graduated and, and, and doing everything they could, um, as well as, you know, being on the front lines, uh, so to speak, when, uh, when students resume classes and we're in the middle of the Delta variant. So uh, it's nice to see uh, not only Ms. Garcia, um, uh, named, uh, but also that uh, a pretty long list of finalists and other nominees being recognized, you know, sort of as surrogates for all teachers uh, statewide that have done a great job. Yeah. I mean, congratulations to all of them. Their work is so far from done as kids return, you know, back to quote unquote normal this year, full time, full days, maybe not in some instances, probably depends where you are in the country. Um, but but kids, their needs have changed. They need a lot more from their teachers. I know that, you know, my son's in second grade and his teacher said, my focus this year is on social and emotional learning and growth after the past year we've had. I think that's the most important thing. And that's hard. That's hard stuff. So uh, there is no teacher I can imagine that didn't deserve an award after the past year, but she has been named. So congratulations to Marta Garcia out of Salem, Witchcraft Heights Elementary School. That's great. It's a great name for school, Witchcraft Heights. Um, all right, let's um, let's transition relatedly to a story out of Zillow, or data out of uh, out of Zillow, based in Seattle, um, and pretty widely covered about the cost of living and the cost of renting nationwide in key markets, and specifically how it has negatively impacted teachers and nurses, essentially in order to maintain affordability. We'll talk about that in a moment because I think it's a, it's a little bit of a gray standard, but in order to maintain affordability, teachers and nurses are having to live in smaller, older homes. Basically, it, 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 the standard for affordability for housing is about 30, 30% or less of your income. I, I, think, certain, I, I think certain households um, are, are, are exceeding that and, and, and not at uh, serious financial risk. I think others are below that and are. So, uh, so I, I think it's a variable standard, but it's generally accepted. You want to spend 30% of your income or less, but that's the expected amount you'd spend on housing. Well, uh, Zillow found that for, uh, uh, for many frontline workers, for many in-person workers, um, and they specifically looked at teachers and nurses, in order to maintain that standard, you've got very little to choose from in terms of rentals. And most of them are smaller, older homes uh, with, uh, you know, older features, older appliances, just a lower, an older quality of, of, of rental and a smaller unit. Um, and in some, in some, uh, markets they singled out boston and particularly you're looking at as little as six percent of what's on the market meaning there's all these rentals on the market and 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 you're only looking at a tiny percentage if you're trying to maintain that standard as so many of these um 
professional educators and nurses are. So it's a really interesting uh, sort of deep dive, sort of narrow look at how the housing market is impacting these uh, these people, these professionals. I want to get into a little bit of the why, but just first get your thoughts on that because um, I can't imagine really having almost nothing to choose from uh, when you're trying to rent an apartment. Uh, and you know that the market for both rentals as well as the home sale market is absolutely on fire. I think this is a multi-pronged problem. Uh, number one, you've highlighted nurses and teachers as the Zillow report did. Um, we're talking about two professions that in most situations, I will not make a huge broad stroke and say all, but in mo many, if not most situations are underpaid to start. Um, that's issue number one. And issue number two is, yes, as we talk about housing, we have two problems. One, we have a lack of affordable housing, um, which in Massachusetts is 40B. There's a you know whole algorithm. It's a thing. But we also have a problem with housing that is affordable, um, which is more to your point of teachers, nurses, anyone in the middle class, lower middle class, whatever it may be, are struggling more and more to have options of what to buy as housing prices go up um, and the what's being built is not affordable housing or housing that's affordable in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, it's not a problem just in Boston. It's, it's a problem in a lot of places. But even like there, there are states in the Midwest that are starting to see, you know, before it was like you could you can move to this state and get acres and acres and acres and um, for little dollars and prices in those states are going up, too. So it's a certainly a national problem. But Boston is, of course, a city um, and a region where we're seeing it even more prevalent. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's about housing. It's about accessibility to housing, not just affordable as, as classified by income guidelines, but really just homes at any level, or at least for the middle class and, uh, you know, and, and, and working families. It's, it's, it's become unbelievable and such a, a stressful part of your financial life to be able to, uh, you know, uh, afford housing or, or, or find a new home or move. If you would have told me or anybody back in 2009, 2010, that a decade later there'd be a, a, a drastic housing shortage, people probably would have laughed at you um, because of the glut of housing after the financial crisis. He had homes in, in Detroit basically being given away. He had condominiums, luxury condos in Atlanta, Georgia, selling for $50,000. Properties that um, you could pick up easily in you know desirable re retirement communities like Arizona, Las Vegas, down in Florida, and, and even in, even in this market, right? 20, 2013, 2014, 2015, there was still a glut of homes five, six years ago, and how things have quickly changed, a combination of factors. Certainly at the tail end, the pandemic had a strange kind of impact on, on people uh, and and. and Re, it, it's sort of reinforcing the importance of the home and, and therefore creating demand that way. Um, and then just population growth. But the, the number one factor is simple, underbuilding. And I think every story, every analysis says, hey, guess what? Well, I don't know if it was whether we were, you know, 
so stunned by the financial crisis uh, and the and the markets and the and the availability of of, of uh, financing or, or other factors, but we didn't build enough housing for at least ten years. And if you do that, you're in big trouble. And, and, and sure enough, that's where you know just about every major market is right now, as well as a, a lot of other um, you know uh, smaller markets and less popular locations. Uh, there just isn't enough housing. And um, this is one of the impacts of it. And, and it's probably something that we're going to be rectifying, not for the next 10 years, but for the next 25 or 30. Yeah, it's a long road ahead. And to your point, the COVID pandemic certainly exacerbated it on two sides. One, uh, people were suddenly without jobs and unable to afford things and facing evictions and needing to find new homes and all of that. Um, and then people that had the means were saying, I want more space. I want to move out of the city. I want to buy a house and, um, or, you know, just change sort of the footprint in which I'm living. And all of a sudden demand went up while supply to your point stayed relatively down. Um, yeah, it's, it's a long-term issue uh, that is rooted in long-term problems. So <laughs> it's not ideal uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, there's a lot happening in Massachusetts, of course, within the legislature and the administration to try and address some of these issues, but certainly not something that can be fixed overnight. Absolutely. All right, Kyan, inter interesting and important stuff. Um, and uh, certainly more to come on that uh as things progress, I want to shift gears just for a, a final minute or two and just talk briefly about Facebook. It's been quite a week for Facebook. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm just going to start with a confession for a fleeting moment. I'm going to say, I'm going to admit that I thought, gee, does this really mean Facebook has been wiped clean from the internet? Wow. That's kind of crazy. And then I saw like one guy on Twitter saying, there's no way this is possible. I'm like, yeah, no, he's right. And then sure enough, it wasn't. But we all experienced, a lot of people experienced this, uh, I don't know, it was a nine hour com uh, complete outage of Facebook as well as Instagram and WhatsApp uh, that was kind of a kind of a punctuation mark to a week where there's been just tremendous scrutiny um, around Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and their uh, very poor record, which he has now admitted to in very sort of open fashion uh of allowing the platform to be used for a whole variety of uh nefarious and uh destructive purposes yeah i didn't hate it um i found it refreshing for a little while to not sort of live in a world where we were all just so focused on um social I will say there's a meme that was going around about like whoever's Instagram post was stuck at the top of your feed that day. Like you're never going to like their post again. Um, mine happened to be like a post from my gym. So I just felt like I was being taunted all day. Um, but it was a almost a disturbing look at how much of our lives are wrapped in to Facebook. And it's not just Facebook as a social media platform. It's everything that they own too. So WhatsApp, Instagram, places that people are using to communicate, to shop, to conduct business, um, all sort of came to a screeching halt. And that's just the first layer. Then you go to the second layer of how many 
businesses you can use your Facebook account to log into. I personally don't do that because I don't want Facebook tracking my entire life, but a lot of people do because it's easy. So then all of a sudden, you also couldn't log into all of those other accounts and platforms. Um, and while this was happening, it was the backdrop was a whistleblower who's come from Facebook and essentially said, this place is so messed up and broken. They know what's wrong. They can't fix it or they won't fix it. And I'm sick of it. Um, it, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and the Facebook team have been taken to task, I think, a lot in the last few years. They've been brought before Congress to testify, you know, whether it was misinformation related to the presidential election. Yeah, uh, Borat, he's relentless. Sasha, <laughs> Barack, no, just, just um, and, you know, every time we kind of get this same answer, which is like, you know, we're looking at it. There's only so much we can do. You know, we don't want to be editing. Um, but a lot of nefarious things also happen um, on Facebook and outlets like it. And yes, I think there is a responsibility to address platforms that allow uh, child abuse and child trafficking, and just to name a few that are incredibly important and not to be ignored, all the way down to the idea that Instagram has been deteriorating young people, particularly young women's self-image for quite some time. Um, there's a lot to be said and there's a, you know, as a, but that's also on us too. I think, you know, not to be on my soapbox, but like as a society, so to speak, we all have a role that we're playing in a lot of the issues of, you know, only putting out our best life and all of these things that it can be toxic. And the idea that we all kind of collective collectively had to walk away and take a breath from that, um, I talked to a lot of people the last couple of days that were like, I just kind of found it nice. It's funny. I, I agree. And, I, and I'm surprised at myself. Well, first of all, you mentioned business. And don't forget that in so many small businesses don't just use Facebook for marketing. They are built around Facebook and, are, and, and people are making their living on, on, with business models that rely on Facebook marketing to even, to even exist and be successful. So that was a whole... And I'm sure they you know, they sustained some level of, uh, of of temporary damage, but the idea of if that just went away, on a, you know, for good, what that would do the destructive effect. Obviously, that's and that, that didn't and probably will never happen. Nonetheless, I couldn't believe it. After about an hour, I'm like, oh yeah, my photos. Oh, and then I'm like, ah, who cares? Like, I, I it didn't really bother me, even though I am like, you know, classic the Facebook user that the that, that, that Zuckerberg and his uh, gang want, right? I've got this, <laughs> I've, I've got the window open all day uh, and, and I communicate through it. I'll message some people. I post, you know, not a gazillion things, but a lot. I post really quick, you know, rapid fire. But the thing is open, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, I moderate a Facebook group, uh, a networking group. I'm part of groups. I got my little, um, you know, Side hustle, justice of the peace. I got my little Facebook page. So I'm like, that's what they want. They want someone who uses it all the time. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, and I, I found myself being like, yeah, whatever, you know. And it, all the people that were more than over 3 billion people, I think, combined with the three apps, I thought to myself, it's like 3 billion people, like stopping, you know, quitting crack or meth 
all at the same time for the same in the same moment. I thought that was funny. I tweeted it. One person liked it because I have no friends. But think of it. Everyone just you're off it. You're off it. And and it is an analogy because it's a it's a habit. Facebook and a lot of platforms are oh, a habit. Yeah. I mean the amount of times throughout that day, even knowing it was down, you just automatically opened like Instagram and went to try and refresh it. And it was just, it's like you do it without thinking about it. Um, look, Facebook has a million really good, maybe not a million, but like, like a lot of really good attributes. And it has helped people who could not have had businesses otherwise have a business, have a successful business um, and, you know, keep people connected that never would have in the past. Like, there's so many great things I, that should not be ignored. Um, but the responsibility that comes with holding that much information about individuals and then people and how we work and communicate um, is a heavy one, right? And <laughs> this week was uh, such a reminder of how much of our lives is truly wrapped up in Facebook and the apps that they own. And I think it gave even more backing and support to, you know, this, the woman who came forward, her name is escaping me at the moment as a whistleblower, just to say, you know, there's a lot going on that still needs to be addressed because until Facebook came, nothing like it really existed. So we're, we're still learning. Um, And I think Facebook is still learning, but the rest of us and lawmakers and people of power are also still figuring out how to really wrap their their minds and their hands around this very large beast that plays an incredibly prevalent role in just about everyone's life in some way, shape, or form. It does. I think your whistleblower is Francis Haugen. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and and you know just instantly, um, you know this uh, this week uh, based on her just her opening statement to the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Uh, she will be etched in stone through history as you know a very significant person in the history of um, of, of how we experience social media and the history of Facebook as a corporation. So it's a uh, it's been quite a week for the company indeed. Um, all right, hey Cayenne, great talking to you. Good stuff. We'll do it again very soon. Always a pleasure, sir. That's going to do it for this edition of Three Two One Go on OA on Air. Our program is recorded remotely. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. All right, joining us now on OA On Air is Doug Banks, editor of the Boston Business Journal, friend of the podcast, early guest, Doug. You were like you were way back like in first 10 episodes 150 or so episodes ago great to have you back on the podcast here thanks so much for having me cosmo it's great to be back excellent um well thanks for coming on so a couple things uh, i wanted to touch on first uh is uh, big news out of your world uh get used to uh hearing about the providence business journal which is a new project launched um uh, by a parent company of the bbj american city business journals and also I believe helmed in part right out of uh, your newsroom, right? That is exactly right. Yeah, we're happy to uh, have launched the 45th business journal in the American City Business Journal's 
Network um, and uh, the Providence Business Journal. We have uh, a reporter on the ground in Providence that uh, that we've hired, uh, uh, that I hired, uh, Mary Serez. She's going to be fantastic. And um, Steph Solis, our digital editor in Boston, is sort of the point person uh, on the editing side with uh, with help from our managing editor and myself in uh, editing. But we're excited. We've had uh, we've had a presence in Rhode Island with Rhode Island Inno, which is one of our you know, American inno markets for about four years now. So this sort of rounds out the uh, the business journal uh, inno uh, combination that we have here in Boston, and we had in uh, twenty markets across the country. But now, over the past month, American City Business Journals has rolled out innos in all of the markets. So we now have an inno and a business journal in 44, 45 different cities. That's terrific. That's great to see that growth. And inno, of course, is Sort of innovation, startups, early stage companies, and that whole sector, right? Exactly. Yep. Anything, uh, anything related to innovation. So it could be techs, could be startups. It could also be traditional companies, insurance companies, or you know places like uh, UPS or banks that are doing really innovative things. So um, entrepreneurship and what we call intrapreneurship would be covered there as well. Excellent. Um, yeah, Providence. It's an interesting market. Is there particular industries? <laughs> there that uh, are going to be kind of exciting for your for your team to cover. Yeah, economic development is going to be our core coverage area. So commercial real estate, um, you know, the intersection of business and government, but also you know public policy, technology, and startups. Really, anything that's growing and, and driving the economy of Rhode Island. Uh, obviously, Providence being the epicenter of that, but really the whole state. Um, Newport has a lot of wealth there. Obviously, we're going to cover cover Newport. Uh, we had a great. Uh, slideshow and story uh, earlier on uh, this this classic car show that was the, in Newport about a week or two ago. So we're um, we're excited to be to be covering all things ec- uh, economic and and real estate related in, in Rhode Island going forward. And just finally on this, from from a media perspective, um, you know, I mean, an argument could be made and that that the Providence media market in recent years has has. Um, become mildly or moderately underserved with the decline of certain media properties in the daily newspaper. The Boston Globe, from a kind of general interest news perspective, has uh, enhanced its own coverage down there, its own presence. And now this, so it looks like, you know, other organizations uh, are are sort of stepping up uh, to fill that void and and provide important news coverage where some of the traditional uh, outlets um, are not in the same condition they once were. I think that's that's definitely fair to say. Um, I think you're absolutely right that Providence, uh, both from a business journalism standpoint and a general news standpoint, is um, is becoming more competitive now. Which, of course, you know, is great for the readers. It's great for businesses. It's great when you have media competing, and just like here in Boston, where you know we've. We had, you know, we've been a two media, t- uh, two newspaper town with the Herald and the Globe, um, you know, for for so many years. Now the Business Journal and the Globe, we, you know, we go head to head at a lot of things. We're a two NPR station town with WBUR and and WGBH. So whenever you have competition, uh, the readers uh, ultimately are the ones who benefit the most. So we're we're excited to be able to to be there. And and of course, Providence. The big the big difference between Providence Business Journal and some of the other business journals is that we won't be having a print uh, publication. It's a digital only site. So we'll be publishing daily online and delivering that news to uh, you know via email 
to people uh, through our daily email. So um, so we're not going to be investing in a print product uh, for the time being. We'll be digital only, but um, but we will be, you know, breaking news. We've been breaking news every day. We've been there so far this week and we're we're uh, yeah, we're excited about it. Yeah. Innovation in, in another form. So that's great news. Congratulations. We're talking to Doug Banks, editor of the Boston Business Journal. Doug, I want to shift gears just to a, a piece, um, a couple of stories on an important, interesting topic that uh, the BBJ has covered. And that is the state of college endowments, or at least the state of the of the strongest, healthiest ones. Um, your 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 reporters, a couple of your journalists, took a close look at this, uh, and, and um, a close look at what schools endowments have grown uh, and what's behind the growth over the past, you know, eighteen months or so. Yeah. So this uh, this time of year is when colleges and universities file their annual financial reports. And uh, Hillary Burns, who's our Boston-based editor of our National Observer for Higher Education, uh, she you know analyzed uh, dozens and dozens of um, of these financial reports. And uh, and then the Business Journal's Grant Welker localized a lot of the work that she did to uh, to look at. We saw. Um, so, you know, obviously higher ed is a huge economic driver here in, in Massachusetts and um, not only in Massachusetts, but nationwide. I think the median endowment gain for these, uh, these you know, multi-million and in cases of places like Harvard, you know, multi-billion dollar endowments, the median gain was something like 27% over the past year. Huge yeah. gain in, uh, in returns. It reflects uh, very closely including the asset class that's kind of the, uh, um, you know, a home run hitter for for uh, institutional investors this year. It ref- reflects very closely the strong performance nationwide of public pension funds, including um, uh, the fund in Massachusetts, which is one of the leaders, if not the leader in returns. Same kind of numbers, 25, 27, 28, 30, 29%. And, and I think, uh, and, and, and your coverage points this out, Venture capital, private equity specifically, uh, really an important uh, sort of tentpole for performance uh, across all these institutions and certainly, especially college endowments. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What they, you know, what they call the alternative investments. So like you said, uh, venture capital funds and uh, and private equity funds. Um so and what that meant so that drove a lot of the growth which i think they they said that this year was you know better than any in endowment return years since like 1986 or something the um you know the main thing that this means of course is that the rich get richer right so you know you look at uh the endowments that are you know you know the, the major endowments are going got the biggest returns and those were that's because the you know the big uh big endowments invested more in these alternative asset classes. So if you, if you saw an endowment, say, below $250 million, their allocations in, in private equity and venture capital is, is like single digits, uh, maybe 6 7%. Whereas you know endowments of a billion dollars or more, they were putting as much as a quarter of their allocations into these asset classes. And so they were betting big, and this past year, they won big. Now, whether or not they actually cash out that you know that investment that or they you know or they hold um, it's not like these colleges have all this cash on hand right now uh, they're not you know the, it doesn't get returned to the universities right away but it this you know when we look at these financial documents we can see sort of a snapshot on where they are right now and um, hopefully uh, there's no economic downturn to erase the gains that we've seen 
Indeed. And in addition to the investment gains, which is obviously uh, incredibly significant, um, some of these universities and colleges, BC, BU, and others, just having really strong success and development and generating big donor uh, money um, at a time uh, when I think across higher education, and certainly many smaller schools uh, are are in very different straits, but uh, you know, higher education, a- another field impacted by uh, the, the the pandemic by COVID nineteen, and, and um, you know, I- impacting the way they operate, impacting enrollment, and uh, so it's good news. Again, you say the rich get richer; it's a good point, but um, that that you know, some of these schools are able to access. Um, uh, those big dollars now and really, uh, um, uh, you know, I- I- enhance their endowment. You're absolutely right, Cosmo. I mean, one of the things that we've seen with uh, with the economy is that some companies and some, uh, you know, in, in entrepreneurs and the, these, you know, C-level executives have been making a lot of money over the past couple of years. You know, we, we read about the restaurants and the small businesses that have been getting hurt, the, some of the industries like hotel industries that got, that got crushed, but you know, there's others that have done very, very well. And those, uh, those alumni are giving back to their alma maters and, and we're seeing, you know, MIT's most recent campaign. It just ended in September, brought in $6.2 billion, which in its goal was $5 billion. You know, Harvard ended its campaign a couple of years ago. It raised almost $10 billion. And um, and right now, I think Tufts University is in the middle of a $1.5 billion fundraising program. So we're seeing, you know, really uh, huge numbers on the, um, on the fundraising campaign side as well. You're absolutely right. Indeed. All right, and finally, Doug, let's talk about something else new. It's the Boston Business Journal seven-letter uh, poll initiative, uh, or at least this initial poll, which we started. Uh, uh, hold on, let me start again. I'll pop yep. that up. <coughs> Three, two, one. <coughs> All right, Doug, and finally, some exciting news to talk about. It's the Boston Business Journal seven-letter poll, which is live and out now on one of the most important topics facing the business community. Uh, in Boston and pretty much anywhere else in the country, and that is vaccinations, vaccination mandates, return to work, uh, and all of those issues that companies are dealing with. Yeah, we're excited, Cosmo, to be partnering with you guys. Thanks so much. The uh, the Business Journal and Seven Letter Insights are working together on a on a scientific poll. You know, the Business Journal's had we, what we call the Business Pulse Poll, a sort of an unscientific um, survey tool that we've used for for years on our site. But this is the first time we've partnered with a you know legitimate polling outfit like yourselves to uh, to talk to our audience and hear from our audience on uh, important topics of the day. And uh, so this inaugural poll that we've that we, we've got out now is focused, as you said, on COVID-19 vaccination in the workplace. And uh, we're just, you know, we want to get a sense because business leaders honestly are at a loss. They just don't know what the next steps are going to be uh, as we, you know, continue through. Um, now, booster shots, of course, are, are making headlines. And we're seeing that more booster shots are being uh, taken than first vaccines. And so there's a lot of you know, a lot of things going on in the workplace that uh, that people, uh, leaders are trying to sort out. And, and so we're trying to provide as much insight for them as we can. And we appreciate uh, working with you guys to be able to do that. Yeah, no, it's going to be a, it's going to be really fascinating. I mean, in the same way that there's inconsistencies in the way different communities are managing their approach to public health or at least approach to, say, mask mandates or vaccine mandates for 
public workers or teachers. <clears throat> There's also in. I don't mean inconsistencies and as in right or wrong, just there's a, there's a varied way of different companies looking, uh, uh, you know, at, at policy and workplace um, issues in their, within their own companies and how they're going to manage them. And, uh, and I think this, uh, I think this poll will really get to that. And I think it's an important topic across every sector of the economy. Uh, we're really excited to, uh, to be doing it. And, um, uh, looking forward to the BBJ uh, report on it and coverage and, and, and so forth. So uh, it's great to be doing it, Doug. And thanks thanks so much for joining us on OA on Air this week. It's always a pleasure having you. Uh, great news, exciting news about the Providence Business Journal. And uh, uh, we'll look forward to talking again soon. Thanks so much, Cosmo. Great to talk to you as well. All righty. Hello, Tom. Two minutes with Cayenne and Tom. It's not catchy when you say it like that. It's two minutes with Tom because alliteration is fun when it rolls off the tongue. I see. I see. <laughs> that would be alliteration. That would be good. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about debt ceiling. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a big deal this week. Lots of talk. There was a potential of, you know, government closing essentially in the next couple of weeks if the debt ceiling wasn't raised. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a bit of a log jam, if you will, in the Senate, which is nothing new. Uh, but the conversation about debt ceiling, depending on which party you're in, really can work in your favor or against it, I guess, if you want it to, which we saw play out a bit this this week in this last couple of weeks, where because the minority leader McConnell in the Senate was refusing to recognize the debt ceiling uh, expansion. It was going to it was going to sever opportunities uh, for people to be paid, whether we're talking about military, social security, uh, food stamps, there, any number of programs would have been attached and hurt, where people weren't going to be paid and people were going to miss out on health coverage and a whole slew of other things that keep this company country going. Not only not only that, but we're talking about debt that has to be paid back for people that own bonds in the U.S. Treasury. And if that were to run amok, then you have a global situation where, where people really bring into consideration, um, you know, the strength of the and backing of the United States government treasury. And that has, that has global effect. And that's why the stock market was down over the last couple of weeks uh, for fear that, you know, politics were going to play silly havoc on a global economy that made no sense whatsoever. Um, and then McConnell ceded. Um, and he extended it for, um, I guess, 10 weeks into December so that parties could get together to, to deal with this. I think, um, I, I, I think you know, McConnell, in a sense, deserves a pat on the back. But on, on another hand, you know, the Democrats didn't do this when, when President Trump was in place and they raised the debt ceiling three times. Um, and so politics are playing a greater role today. It's a dangerous role. And we have to be paying attention to it. On the other hand, we have um, the majority leader Schumer uh, coming out and criticizing Republicans for doing it. Um, and he's being criticized by Republicans for being as harsh as he was. Well, you know, that all gets played out in, in the press and who knows how it winds up. The fact of the matter is the government will continue. The stock market is up. People will be paid and things are better off because of it, at least through 
the first couple of weeks of December, and then we see what happens again. And then we probably watch all of this play out again, right? I mean, that tends to be it's a bit of a game of chicken um, that we keep encountering every few months or so for some reason or the other, particularly because, you know, the issues around this was if they if they pushed Democrats on this, uh, perhaps they wouldn't have been able to pass infrastructure. So, you know, there's always a there's always a lot happening and the political logjam does not seem to be getting much better. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think what America is looking for is to have both parties put on their big boy pants and behave like adults and get and get the government working. What a refreshing um, idea. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'd like to think that that's going to happen. Anyway, it's always nice to talk to you. It's nice to see you and uh, Catherine, thanks always for your help. You're great. Thanks, Tom. All right, Cayenne. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.